The following program contains views that are not necessarily those of the National Football League or the San Francisco 49ers. The ideas and opinions presented belong solely to the individuals that provide them. So we might as well just air it out that you guys built this stadium on the backs of Jim Harbaugh's wins, sold the corporate suites, jacked up the value of the franchise, tripled it, and now don't really care that much about anything else other than the money. So how would you address that criticism that fans consistently bring to us in the media? We're willing to spend what it takes to get back to a championship culture. You know, I truly am sorry that we had to go through this year. I want you to understand that we're going to do everything that we can and we're working hard right now to put the pieces in place to get this team back to where it belongs. The media painted this as um, anti-American, anti-men and women of the military, and that's not the case at all. I realize that men and women of the military go out and sacrifice their lives and put themselves in harm's way for my freedom of speech and my freedoms in this country and my freedom to take a seat or take a knee. I think what I did was taken out of context and spun a different way. And I think having these conversations helps everybody have a better understanding of where everybody is coming from. This is a storied franchise that has captivated Americans ever since Joe Montana came to the team. Been fans ever since I was a kid myself in the good old days of Steve Young, Jerry Rice. They're my hometown team. Win together, lose together kind of thing. I've been a 49er fan since I was a little boy. I love the 49ers. I grew up watching football, so for me, it's one of my all-time biggest pastimes. We all remember watching all the Super Bowls. I can't live without them. They're my team, always. Always a diehard Niner fan. This is Document 49, the rise, fall, and rebirth of the San Francisco 49ers. The Prologue, Part 3. Kneeling in the Ashes. It's up to us to make sure we compete for and win Super Bowls. That's our only goal. We don't raise division championship banners. We don't raise NFC championship banners. We raise Super Bowl banners. And whenever we don't deliver that, I hope that you will hold me directly responsible and accountable for it. Welcome back to Document 49. My name is Nicholas Sheldon. Let's continue. Our story picks up on December 29, 2014, in Santa Clara, California. 49er CEO Jed York and General Manager Trent Baalke sit side-by-side in front of the assembled media in the Levi Stadium press room, just one day removed from Jim Harbaugh's final victory as the team's head coach. According to York, the organization's decision to mutually part ways with their former field general was due to a variety of, quote, philosophical differences with Harbaugh. Though during that day's press conference, neither York nor Balky would elaborate on the specific nature of those issues. As Jed stated earlier, we're not going to get into the exact philosophical differences. You know, it was a mutual parting of the ways. 
there were some issues that uh, we weren't going to come full circle on. We made that decision to move on. I mean, what I hear from fans is something short of getting into fistfights with a coach who's been not successful. Then everyone's grown men, and you work it out because you want to win a Super Bowl. And if that's the head coach that, that can do that for you, you just find a way. Obviously, you guys feel like there was just no way to work that out. Is that accurate? Again, it was a mutual parting. This was on two different parties. This was on us, and this was on Jim. So, I mean, it wasn't that one side had a philosophical difference that couldn't overcome it. This was two parties that decided that it was best to move in separate directions. And less than 24 hours later, Jim Harbaugh would stand in the press room of another institution, his alma mater, the University of Michigan where he would be named the 20th head coach of the Wolverines football program. Harbaugh, of course, played four seasons at quarterback for the university in the early 1980s. Thank you. Thank you very much. My first team meeting, I was 10 minutes late. Coach Schembechler told me that I would never play a single down at the University of Michigan my entire career. 2014 to come back as a football coach at the University of Michigan. I have thought about that, dreamed about that since the time I was a young lad and throughout uh, adult life, dreamed about coaching at Michigan. While Jim Harbaugh embraced his warm welcome back home in the Midwest, the spotlight on the West Coast pivoted sharply to another in the 49ers front office. The team's general manager, Trent Baalke. There's a lot of good football coaches out there. What we need to do is go out and find a coach that can come in here now, lead this football team. Uh, we're not in a rebuild. This isn't a rebuild situation. This is a reload situation. I personally, when they fired Harbaugh, I was like, I think Balky should have been fired. That was just my opinion at the time. So Why do you think Balky should have been fired? He didn't do his job. I mean, like he had a couple years, which he won, right? GM of the year or whatever, where he was actually making good draft picks. Look at the team now. Like his draft picks were crap. Okay, you don't go for every player that has like an injury that's supposed to be great or anything. I mean, you have to actually go after some good talent. And then we ended up depleted everywhere. And it was because that's his job, right? Let's rewind a bit. Back to the book of Singletary. As you'll recall, Trent Baalke's promotion arrived as a result of former GM Scott McLuhan agreeing to mutually part ways with the 49ers in 2010. And during this time, early returns appeared to be favorable regarding York's choice to invest in Baalke. The 49ers 2010 draft board may have been all Scott McLuhan's doing, but Baalke was still able to execute on draft day and secure a collection of solid contributors to the 49ers roster, including tackle Anthony Davis, guard Mike Ayupati, and linebacker Navarro Bowman. He also signed running back Brian Westbrook in free agency as a capable backup to Frank Gore and traded a fifth round pick to the Miami Dolphins for speedy wide receiver and return man Ted Ginn Jr. Right now, you know, it's draft talk, but like I said, going back a week ago, we said, you know what, if we came out of the first round like this, it would be the perfect storm. We feel good. More importantly, they're not only good football players, they're good people and they fit the identity of the type of players we want on this football team. The following year's draft, the first of the Jim Harbaugh era in 2011, was also a home run for Balky and his staff, picking up a slew of talented playmakers like pass rusher Alden Smith, quarterback Colin Kaepernick, cornerback Chris Culliver, running back Kendall Hunter, and defensive end turned fullback Bruce Miller. 
and due to the strike-shortened offseason, Balky was able to pillage a robust free agent market once the lockout concluded, picking up a number of talented veterans to fill needs on both offense and defense. Because of this early offseason success, and Jim Harbaugh leading the 49ers to a 13-3 record and nearly the Super Bowl in his first season as head coach, Balky was awarded the NFL Executive of the Year Award by the Associated Press, and the following month, the 49ers rewarded him with a five-year contract extension, keeping Balky employed with the team through 2016. Last year's success doesn't mean anything moving forward. We got a lot of work to do. Feel very good about the systems that we have in place and the coaching staff now having a full offseason to really work with these guys. The locker room isn't going to be the same. There are going to be new faces. You're trying to bring in that group of guys that can come together the way last year's group did. And there's no guarantees, uh, but we're going to work very hard at it. There's a lot of things that got to happen for us to maintain and improve on what we did a year ago. By most accounts, it appeared as if the 49ers were set up for both stability and success for years to come, with their new general manager dominating both the draft and free agency on an annual basis. But in hindsight, the honeymoon for Trent Baalke ended after the 2011 season, and the notion of offseason failure suddenly became more and more familiar to the 49ers front office. Oscar Aparicio and David Newman of the Niners Nation Better Rivals podcast return for part three of Document 49's prologue. Ultimately, I think the rap on Trent Baalke was someone who, from a football perspective, was not a great judge of talent, especially in the draft. And he very much clung to a couple of strategies that just did not prove to work year over year, and yet he still returned to them. What started out on a very high note fell apart the more time went on. When reviewing the remainder of Trent Baalke's drafts, it's often hard to find the silver lining. The 2012 draft class only yielded one player of note, Oregon running back LaMichael James, who rarely produced more than average play in his three years with the franchise. 2013 wasn't much better. Aside from making a slam dunk pick with LSU safety Eric Reed in the first round, none of the remaining players drafted that spring were able to help the team improve in any measurable way. Baalke's three remaining drafts were also spotty at best though not complete disasters. He was able to add capable pieces in safety Jimmy Ward, running back Carlos Hyde, linebacker Chris Borland, safety Joukowsky Tart, and defensive end DeForest Buckner. But in order to be consistently successful in the National Football League, a franchise can't just add two to three productive rookies every offseason and expect to remain competitive for years to come. He started drafting guys were like, oh, well, he would be a first-round grade, but he blew out his ACL. But let's get him for cheap and hope he rehabs and none of those guys played out i think balky tried to get too cute in the kind of players that he drafted and instead of just picking the best guy on the board or you know he tried to go with guys that like quote fit our scheme when in the balky regime after harbaugh we didn't really know what our scheme was the joke with trent balky was that he loved guys with long arms and he loved guys without acls we have an entire roster of players that had a knee injury. And I see the logic. Trent Baalke was thinking, I can gain an efficiency here. The team is so good that this player doesn't have to start right away. They get a year to recover, effectively a redshirt year. And then I get first round value in the second round or second round value in the third or fourth round. The phrase Team ACL soon became commonly known amongst the 49ers faithful. 49ers draft classes consisting of college players that have sustained knee injuries during their senior seasons of college play. He tore his ACL and it was unfortunate at a private workout 
and uh, we really had him valued high. He was the highest player on our board once again when we made the pick. The value was just too high to pass up. At the very least, the logic was sound. Harkening back to the 49ers' third-round selection of running back Frank Gore in 2005, who famously rebounded from two ACL surgeries he sustained while playing at the University of Miami. But unfortunately for Balky, no players from Team ACL ever amounted to being consistent contributors for the 49ers. Players like linebacker Tank Carradine, running back Marcus Lattimore, guard Brandon Thomas, wide receiver DeAndre Smelter, and cornerbacks Keith Reeser and Will Redmond all ended up being role players at best on the 49ers roster. I can't think of really one all-ACL player that turned into much of anything except for maybe Tank Carradine. And he's a fringe depth player. That strategy just by and large wasn't successful. And that was the most frustrating thing about Trent Baalke is that everything seemed set up for him to succeed. And all he had to do was nail a couple of picks. And the only ones he could nail were the ones from the board that Scott McLuhan left for him when he departed in 2010. And to add insult to literal injury, the healthy college players Balky selected were often puzzling choices as well. Some of his most famous misses? Illinois' wide receiver A.J. Jenkins, taken in the first round of the 2012 draft, with highly touted South Carolina wide receiver Alshon Jeffrey still on the board. Then there's Rice University tight end Vance McDonald, taken in the second round of the 2013 draft, who brought with him a lack of consistency in nearly every facet of his game. And then there's Clemson punter Bradley Pinion, taken in the fifth round of the 2015 NFL Draft, while the 49ers already had one of the best punters in the league in Andy Lee. Tomorrow, do you need seven guys to make this team? If they're the right seven, you know, if they're the right seven, you know, who knows where they come from, right? I mean, we've seen it all too often. There's value to be found, and the more darts you have, the more balloons you can pop. Yeah, and that's there, there's there's some there's some value in that. I think the ownership should have sided with Harbaugh, not Balky. Balky had some really nice drafts, and then he didn't. And so I wish he had gone first. A general manager is really responsible for two very important things: both the valuation and the evaluation of talent. Valuation is, of course, how much you pay them, and evaluation is how good that player is. What we basically came to the conclusion of was that Trent Baalke was very good at the valuation of players, but he was not always great at the evaluation of players. He missed on lots of draft picks, and he didn't really acquire players that fit a lot of what the 49ers wanted to do. So we thought, well, he's good at one of the two things you need to do. Let's hope that he hits on a couple of drafts and, and we could see a, a path towards turning this around. And then you start to look at some of the things that you liked about what Balky did, accumulating draft capital, being able to identify players on the roster and, and get them to sign kind of team-friendly extensions. You start to wonder how much of those good things were really the influence of Pragmarate and, and kind of the more analytics-based approach that he brings to the table. In negotiating contracts, for example, we think about the team as a portfolio, right? And so we look at how much money we want to distribute to each player you know, or each position group. Maybe we only want to distribute X dollars to the linebacker position. But you know what? If we feel like we've got two, maybe three potential Hall of Fame linebackers, then you know, you got to blow that up. You've got a position defining or redefining uh, player then analytics sort of has to go out the window because then you structure the team around that kind of redefining talent. Turns out that that valuation part was paragmarate. All of the really awesome things that we thought about contracts that we thought, oh, Trent Baalke, this is a really smart move. This is great. Look at this deal. It's all Marate. 
And, and that's and that's really awesome. And it's a positive place to be, I think, now. But in this regard, I will give credit to Jed because Jed and Prague are close. They are friends. But he could have easily have gotten rid of Marate altogether. And he didn't. And after the whole bulky thing washed away, he was able to bring him back. And John Lynch has now made Marate an integral part of what the 49ers do. And I think it's to the 49ers' benefit. Growth. Change can certainly yield us great rewards, whether it's for a particular personal goal or for starting a new life. It is important to hit the refresh button every now and again. However, change can also be to our detriment. Such is the conflict between the two ideologies, and picking between the two is not always simple. In one hand lies the belief that only fools rush in, the words of Elvis Presley. In the other is the belief that life is what happens when you are too busy making other plans, the words of John Lennon. So, what is the best course of action? We can be patient, calculate risk, and make a change, or we can fearlessly dive headfirst into something new. Whichever path we choose, the nature of the outcome is never guaranteed. And if we aren't satisfied with the results, another change might be required. Such is the ongoing nature of growth. Growth. Jed, what qualities are you looking for in the next I want a teacher. I think what made Bill Walsh so successful is that he was a great teacher, whether that was players or whether that was other coaches. And you look at his successful coaching tree. As of 2012 or 2013, 29 of the 32 coaches in the NFL had either a direct or indirect relationship with Bill. That's what made this organization so successful. You're able to transition from one three-time winning Super Bowl head coach to another two-time Super Bowl winning head coach. What I want to make sure that we have is somebody that understands that level of teaching, understands how to get more out of less and continue to build an organization that wins both on and off the field. So after Jim Harbaugh leaves, you just have head coaches that you know are not going to succeed. The writing was on the wall for Jim Tomsula the moment he was considered. When all was said and done, the organization interviewed seven candidates to be the 19th head coach of the San Francisco 49ers. Those men included Broncos Offensive Coordinator Adam Gase, Patriots Offensive Coordinator Josh McDaniels, Seahawks Defensive Coordinator Dan Quinn, Cardinals Defensive Coordinator Todd Bowles, former Jets Head Coach Rex Ryan, 49ers Defensive Coordinator Vic Fangio, and 49ers Defensive Line Coach Jim Tom Sula. There was also an eighth man the 49ers spoke to that January, or eighth and ninth, depending on what you read. Former Broncos and Redskins Head Coach Mike Shanahan and what was believed by many to be a joint interview with his son, former Browns offensive coordinator Kyle Shanahan. Of course, Mike Shanahan served as the 49ers offensive coordinator from 1992 to 1994, working alongside head coach George Seifert to help the 49ers win their fifth Super Bowl title. This is going to be a search that we're going to conduct with a small group of people. We're going to spend the next several weeks interviewing and then uh, hopefully be in a position to make a decision at that point in time. 
but we're going to take as long as necessary to make sure that we have the right person in place. Regardless of the 49ers' interest in the Shanahan family, it was former Denver Broncos offensive coordinator Adam Gase who appeared to be the early favorite to succeed Harbaugh in 2015. A lesser-known fact about Gase is his previous ties to the organization, having served as an offensive assistant with the 49ers in 2008. The whole thing was really curious with Adam Gase reportedly being offered the job and then at the last minute supposedly there were demands that were appended like he had to keep Jim Tomsula as defensive coordinator or something like that. That was the rumor anyway. Adam Gase said no, I want to control my own staff and so then they went with option two and that was Jim Tomsula. According to an interview with NBC Sports Bay Area's Matt Miyoko, Gase had two meetings with the 49ers that January. Gase has also explained that it was made clear to him that Trent Baalke would be making the final decision on the 49ers hire, and that no requirements were discussed at any time regarding who Gase's coordinators would be. Yet less than 24 hours after Gase's second interview with Trent Baalke in Denver, the 49ers made their decision to move forward and announce their new head coach to the public. Their unlikely choice? 49ers defensive line coach Jim Tom Sula. Now writing and reporting for CSN Bay Area, Jennifer Lee Chan returns to Document 49 to share her perspective as our story continues. When they first announced that Jim Tomsula was going to be head coach, I, as well as I think many other people, understood that this was a guy that was being hired from within. And you kind of understood it because he was the complete opposite of what Jim Harbaugh was. That he was going to be a guy that was going to be amenable to the owners, to Trent Baalke. He was kind of going to be a yes guy. He was going to be a guy that they could influence and kind of mold and kind of direct. Thursday, January 15th, 2015, 49ers CEO Jed York and General Manager Trent Baalke returned to the Levi's Stadium press room to once again sit at the long folding table covered with a black tablecloth, each man armed with their own plastic water bottle, to introduce Jim Tom Sula as the franchise's next head coach. Good afternoon. We are here to introduce the new head coach of the San Francisco 49ers, Jim Tom Sula. Uh, the one thing I want to say as I was going through this process, as we were going through this process, it, it was very clear there, there's a lot of good football coaches out there. Uh, we met with some of the best coaches in the profession, talked about the pedigree, looking for the right pedigree, looking for the right leader, looking for the right teacher, looking for the right motivator. It's hard when you're interviewing people to find individuals that check all of the boxes you're looking for. And uh, a lot of the guys that we talked to, you could check a lot of those boxes. But I kept coming back to, and we kept coming back to as a group, Jim Tom Sula. Because all of those boxes that we were talking about, he checked. He's a man of high integrity, low humility, has a lot of humility, I should say. And uh, one of the finest men I've ever been fortunate enough to be around. And there's no doubt in my mind, as we went through the process, that this was the right man for the job. And for a brief moment, there was almost a feeling of optimism in the room for the 49ers' long-tenured defensive line coach. That is, until he stepped to the podium. Um, obviously, I'm very proud to be standing here right now. Okay, I understand uh, my journey is an unusual one. I completely understand that. Uh, my journey's taken that family on, what, three continents? And, uh, and nothing has been the norm. So I am used to not normal. I get it. 
I get the decision that, that, that these men just made. I get it. I accept it. I know, I know what it is. And I'm real excited about it. Okay? Uh, real excited about it. We get the opening press conference, and I think the entire world was like, holy hell, what the hell have they done? I mean, it was just, it was one of the worst press conferences I think anyone's ever seen for a head coach. As, a, as, a, as we go through here with the, with the San Francisco 49ers and we talk about the organization that, that, that uh, these men have built and ladies have built, um, what a village. I'm that guy that's into the village. Uh, I, I believe it takes a village. And I know we're here to talk about football, we're going to get to it, but I think all this is part of it. Uh, Joan in payroll. She's not only in payroll, Joan, Joan's my financial advisor. Joan, make sure I got enough money in the 401k. Tom Silla couldn't even tell you what his vision of the team was, and Balky had to step in and say, oh, I think he means we're going to run the ball. Can you talk about your X's and O's philosophy? What type of defense do you want to run? What, what do you want to see on offense going forward? Uh, my X's and O's philosophy are uh, uh, quite simply, uh, you, know, you, you, you build a team to a scheme. You go into the draft, you go into the, into, into the, into the uh, free agency, and, and you acquire, you're in the talent acquiring business to, to a scheme. Okay? And then I feel like uh, uh, the most important thing is when that's over, now you have to do a 180. And now, see, I, I look at it from, a, from a, a personnel to fit a scheme. So I'm looking at that scheme, and I'm, and I'm trying to fit the pieces. Okay, we don't live in a perfect world. It's not a perfect science. Okay, things happen. Okay, people, you know, aren't available. So once, we've, once we have that talent and, and we have those players, now we have to flip that. And now we look at it, we want to take that scheme and fit it to the players. So to me, when you talk philosophical, uh, that's the way in building, in building your schematics, in building your, your, uh, uh, your approach to teaching and your, and your building blocks, that's where the, you have to have the latitude built in there to be able, you know, it's a structure, okay, we stay within our structure, but you have to have that latitude to be able to adapt and adjust uh, your schematics to fit the players. So uh, I hope that answers your question. Matt, Matt, I think somewhere in there, he said we're going to run the football. Yeah. <laughs> that tells you everything you need to know. You've got a, a head coach who's basically a yes man that's basically a mouthpiece for the GM. That wouldn't inspire confidence in me if I was an owner going to hire this guy. Dovetailing on that question about Colin, how does he fit into your vision? I mean, what's your vision for what he can do for this team going forward? I think he can run. I think he can throw. I think he can can uh, change the pace of a game, change the speed of a game. I think he's very intelligent. When I put it all together, he can do a lot of things with his feet. He can do a lot of things with his hands. He can do a lot of things with his arms. And he can do, thing, do a lot of things with his eyes. And he can do a lot of things with his brain. Although the Jim Tom Sula era was only 60 minutes old, his introductory press conference appeared to be an early indictment of a poor hiring decision by both Jed York and Trent Baalke. But shortly after the event concluded, Tom Sula gave an interview with NBC Sports Bay Area's Jim Cosmore, and things only got worse. 
you and me talking. Just give me a name that you think would be good okay. as an offensive yeah. coordinator. Uh, no. What if I throw a name out there? Yeah, well, Mark you, Trustman. It's someone you might know, right? That's maybe the best you can give me. Yeah. Same question, defensive coordinator. What do you give me an idea of what you're looking for? I'm not trying to trip you up. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I'm really not going to talk about. I'm, I'm just not going to do the it style? out of respect to those people. No, I, I'm I know. Not then we play the name game, okay. but then we, you yeah. know what I mean. I yeah. just don't want to get on that road. Okay. Not even the style. Yeah, style that fits our players. All righty. It was so easy to see coming. He was going to have a hell of a time being successful. You're going from the very top end of the head coaching spectrum in Jim Harbaugh, where you have basically a top two or three head coach in the NFL, just to the complete opposite end. So you're already at a deficit there. There was not much about Jim Tomsula that would have indicated that he was going to be a good head coach. Every sign in big red letters in neon said, nope. And yet the team still decided that this was the best option. And I think by and large, the fan base bleds Jed for that decision because Jim Tom Sula fits the profile of the coach that Jed really loves, which is the kind of big personality rah-rah guy who makes everyone feel good and makes everyone happy, but may not have the chops in order to do all of the things that a great head coach needs to do. And everyone seemed to see that except for Jed York and the 49ers. You know, Jim's experiences in coaching, what is it, Jim's 46 years old, how many seasons? 31. 31 seasons of football, you know, two a year for what, eight, nine years? Yeah. Being a head coach in different places, being on the offensive side, being on the defensive side, and understanding how to coach as coaches, and how to have the right game management, how to operate a game, and how to operate an entire program, those are the skill sets to me that set Jim Tomsula apart from any candidate that we talked to. Early on during the 2015 offseason, a few things were clear. As a head coach, Jim Tom Sulo would be more of a franchise figurehead than a true master of the X's and O's on either side of the football. He would be paid $3.5 million a season, one of the lowest head coaching salaries in the NFL. He would attempt to return to the power running habits of Jim Harbaugh's early years with the team and he would lean heavily on his coordinators to win him football games. Former 49ers quarterbacks coach Jeep Christ on offense, and former Jets and Browns head coach Eric Mangini on defense. The idea was that the 49ers would pick up where they left off at the end of the 2013 season, leaning on a strong ground game to open up high percentage play action passes, and then rely on an elite defensive unit to carry them against tougher opponents. But then came the 49ers Book of Exodus. The mass exodus that happened after Harbaugh left just crippled the team. I'd say York pushed that more than anything. Rats off a sinking ship that offseason was. <laughs> All these guys quit. Patrick Willis retires. Chris Borland, who was an up-and-coming player, he just retires out of the blue. Crabtree's gone. Frank Gore's gone. Justin Smith retires. Key players. This isn't just like a second-string cornerback. These are like guys who were key players on both sides of the ball and they left. And whether that was a statement of the way that Harbaugh got fired or it was bound to happen anyway, we'll never know. I mean, you have Justin Smith who retired, Anthony Davis retired, Iupati left, Parrish Cox left, Chris Culliver left, Frank Gore left, Michael Crabtree went to the Raiders. And when Patrick Willis retired, they saw how Chris Borland played and they're like, oh, it's okay, it'll be Bowman and Borland, it'll be fine. And then Borland retires out of the middle of nowhere. It was not even close to being the same roster that it was the year before. Frank Gore, Michael Crabtree, Steve Johnson, Brandon Lloyd, Kasim Osgood, Mike Ayupati, Anthony Davis, Patrick Willis, Chris Borland, 
Dan Scuda, Justin Smith, Alden Smith, Ray McDonald, Chris Culliver, and Parrish Cox. Andy Lee and Vernon Davis were also traded later that year. It seemed like every morning after Harbaugh left that you were just waking up every day to see who left. Everyone left. All the senior players left and they just left us in a lurch. And you can't blame them. Like I said, rats off a sinking ship. When you gotta go, you gotta go. Save your career. Uh, but it killed the Niners as a team. There's so much talk about this team losing so many players over this offseason. Did you have to dress that early with these guys and say forget about that and just you're here and move on? Uh, I never spoke a word of it, to be honest with you. From the outside, it looks like this is a huge blow to the team. Um, yeah. Is it a huge blow to this team? No, I don't think it's a huge blow to this team. No, I wouldn't categorize it that way. We've got some guys doing some really good things right now that we're really excited about moving into the into training camp. But, but no, I mean, we're really excited about the guys here. That's what we've said all along, okay? The focus is on the guys that are here and the guys that are doing what they're doing. The player exodus of 2015 marked the true end of an era for the San Francisco 49ers, a clear sign that the Book of Harbaugh was closed for good. Age, injuries, and repeated bad behavior had caught up with some. For others, it was a matter of searching for greener pastures or better salaries. And from the outset, the 49ers simply couldn't afford to pay talented players like Mike Ayupati their market value due to a lack of salary cap space. The abrupt departure of so many veteran players immediately put Jim Tom Sula at a disadvantage during his first season as head coach of the 49ers. He already had big shoes to fill in the wake of Jim Harbaugh's absence, but the sudden lack of talent on the 49ers roster meant the 2015 season would now take on a new light. A trial by fire for unproven players forced into starting positions. And the results, not surprisingly, were less than ideal tying back to some of the bulky stuff, a lot of the warts there and, and kind of the ineffective drafting that he started to have after that 2011 season really started to show up because it's like, okay, now we're missing a few key players that had been there and we don't have the quality young talent that's on the roster to be able to step in and fill in for those players. And the combination of the two, bad coaching, bad roster talent was just complete disaster. Miserable, frustrating, dysfunctional, oftentimes unwatchable. The 2015 season under Jim Tom Sula was everything skeptical 49er fans feared it would be following the coach's introductory press conference. On defense, the red and gold returned to their cellar dweller ways, finishing near the bottom of nearly all measurable stats and rankings. On offense, the team was now deficient on the offensive line, losing the entire right side of a formerly reliable unit and surrendering a near league high 53 sacks. Running back Carlos Hyde sustained a severe knee injury in week two and later went on injury reserve. And franchise quarterback Colin Kaepernick was inconsistent at best, struggling with poor play calling, a lack of talent around him, and a new penchant for making erratic passes and game-breaking interceptions. The Jim Tom Sula era in San Francisco would then harken back to the days of Mike Singletary and his ultra-conservative offense, only somehow worse. Halfway through the 2015 season, Former Jaguars first-round pick Blaine Gabbert replaced Kaepernick at quarterback, but the 49ers' offense only marginally improved. As if playing in a different era, Gabbert quickly made a habit of throwing checkdown passes on third and long, to suggest that attempting a pass more than 15 yards downfield was suddenly too dangerous of an option. Meanwhile, Colin Kaepernick would be placed on injured reserve that November with a shoulder injury, 
all the while having to answer questions in the media regarding whether or not the 49ers front office was attempting to make him a scapegoat for the team's struggles that season. This due to various leaks to the press about the quarterback's film study habits. Of course, the truth was somewhere in the middle. The now talent-deprived 49ers defense couldn't stop anyone, on the ground or in the air. Both Kaepernick and Gabbert also struggled to keep pace with their opponents under offensive coordinator Jeep Christ, who was a clear step down from the play-calling tandem of Jim Harbaugh and Greg Roman. Disgruntled 49er fans responded that season by hiring a plane to fly over Levi's Stadium with a banner reading, Jed and the 49ers should mutually part ways. And helplessly watching on the 49ers sideline was Jim Tom Sula, a beloved and revered individual who was woefully out of his depth as head coach of an NFL franchise. Just about the preparation, were the, your guys ready to play football today? Yeah, well, felt like we were. Right? Preparation went well. Uh, you know, did a nice job in practice. Practiced hard, worked hard. Okay? I need to look at uh, look at what we're doing. Okay, that's me. In what area concerns you the most? Well, today, today every area. Okay, I mean, we just need to do a better job. Offensively. A lot of really bad body language. I'm sure you've talked to some players. Is this a fractured team right now? No, it's not fractured. Okay, I think there's a little frustration there, but uh, not fractured at all. How do you move forward and solve or reduce this frustration? You don't go around these things, you go right through them. So lock your jaw and keep going. He's the nicest guy. Meeting him in the hallway in the cafeteria at the facility, asking people's names, how are you doing? Are you good or good? I want you to be good. The nicest guy. There was just no possible way that that team could perform anywhere near what they had done the year before. And the year before, they were 8-8. Eight eight. It wasn't a team that can function on its own without a strong head coach. It was just a totally demoralizing season. Monday, January 4th, 2015. Less than a year removed from mutually parting ways with Jim Harbaugh, 49er CEO Jed York returned to the Levi Stadium press room to announce the firing of Jim Tom Sula. This season was frustrating on a number of levels. We took a step back from our ultimate goal of winning a Super Bowl. For that, I want to apologize to our fans and for everybody that cares deeply about this team the way I do. Standing alone at the podium, this time without general manager Trent Baalke by his side, York appeared disheartened and defeated. He was earnest and apologetic with his words delivering a message seemingly tailored for the 49ers faithful watching at home. The product on the field was bad, and York was committed to making it better. I hear the criticism, loudly, whether that's talking to fans directly, whether that's social media, or from planes flying over my head. The results of this season rest on my shoulders squarely. It wasn't good enough. I want you to understand that we're gonna do everything that we can and we're working hard right now to put the pieces in place to get this team back to where it belongs. From a personal experience, I learned a lot from 2015. A season like this ages you. I think I lost a little bit more hair. Beyond that, I was able to recognize mistakes that I've made in the past. Even looking at over the last few seasons, I think it's important to learn and to grow from your mistakes. I don't take the fans' support lightly. I understand how much passion that you have for this team. And even if it's in the form of criticism of me, I respect it and you deserve more and you're gonna get more. I want this team to win. 
Nobody wants his team to win more than I do. And I'm going to work at it every day to make sure that we get back where we belong. The press was not gentle with York, and understandably so. The CEO and owner who once told the media and 49er fans to, quote, hold him accountable, was now standing in front of them once again, confessing his football sins to a sea of flashing cameras and smartphones. Only this time, York appeared almost conciliatory, as if he knew his past behavior could not continue if the 49ers were able to find any stability in the near future. What mistakes did you learn from during the past year? I think I've taken things too personally, interactions with the media, some of the criticisms from fans. I, I think I've internalized that too much and I've taken it too personally. I think I've done things and you know we can get into tweets that I've sent and thank God you can't see tweets that I didn't send. You know, those things aren't helpful for the team. Jed, your tone obviously is far different than it was a year ago. I mean, is it fair to say you've been humbled by this season? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I don't think it's just this season. I mean, I think it's, it's a collective approach and looking back on being in this role. The world is different than when my uncle was in this role. You know, we were about the same age when we started running the team. And I think you need to adapt as the world adapts. And I, I think I've learned a lot. You know, I truly am sorry that we had to go through this year. But you have my word that I'm going to do everything that we can to get this team back. And unsurprisingly, Jim Harbaugh was also a popular topic of conversation, with his absence only resonating more that afternoon due to a tweet the coach published the previous day, stating, quote, do not be deceived, you will reap what you sow. Do you regret not making a bigger effort to keep Jim here as your head coach? I mean, I think it's well understood what effort that we made to keep him here. I'm not going to dive into that. I'm not going to get into things that happen behind the scenes. I can't look backwards. You know, we can't win games that we've already played. We can't undo decisions that have been made. We need to make sure that all of our effort is focused on the next head coach of the team. You hear the criticism loudly, so we might as well just air it out that the harshest criticism is that you guys built this stadium on the backs of Jim Harbaugh's wins, sold the corporate suites, jacked up the value of the franchise, tripled it, and now don't really care that much about anything else other than the money. And the evidence would be that you paid Jim Tom Sula one of the lowest salaries in the league, and you left a lot of money under the cap. So how would you address that criticism that fans consistently bring to us in the media? I mean, I would say this, like, we've got several years of Jimmy T's salary left. Like, we're going to eat it, whether he's coaching somewhere else or not. I mean, we owe him that. I mean, that's not a concern. I could have easily come out here and said, hey, you know, we had a lot of injuries this year. You know, a lot of things didn't go our way. You know, we're going to stick with this. That's not where we are. Like, we're willing to spend what it takes to get everything right to get back to a championship culture. As the Book of Tom Sula had come to a conclusion, the search then began for the organization's third head coach in as many years, with General Manager Trent Baalke once again leading the effort. The candidates this time around? Former Giants head coach Tom Coughlin, former Eagles head coach Chip Kelly, Bengals offensive coordinator Hugh Jackson, Bucks offensive coordinator Dirk Cotter, Bills assistant coach Anthony Lynn, and, once again, former Broncos and Redskins head coach Mike Shanahan this time without mention of his son Kyle, who had taken an offensive coordinator position with the Atlanta Falcons the previous year. There were also some mild attempts to woo the likes of Saints head coach Sean Payton and Stanford head coach David Shaw, 
but both men were never seen as serious options for the 49ers. At the end of the day, this was a fairly easy decision. Uh, it was evident early on in our conversations with Chip that he shared a very similar vision to us with respect to the direction of this football team. He's a well-rounded, highly innovative coach with a proven track record of success uh, at every level, at every level of competition. Identified as a strong leader of men and somebody that I really consider a true football guy. He's driven, he's passionate, and the one thing that really came forward is his respect for the game, both past and present. All of that, along with some other things, made him the right fit to lead this program into the future. With that said, I'd like to welcome Chip up, the new head coach of the San Francisco 49ers. Wednesday, January 20th, 2016. The Levi Stadium Press Room. Long folding table, black tablecloth, gray suits, and plastic water bottles. Jed York and Trent Baalke sit with Chip Kelly, the 19th head coach of the San Francisco 49ers. And the press conference that day, by all appearances, was a successful one. Thank you. Thank you, John. Appreciate that. It's really humbling to stand here as the 19th head coach of the San Francisco 49ers. Uh, to me, the preeminent organization in the National Football League. There's always been a statement I always thought about is that we can see farther today because of the shoulders that we stand on of the people that came before us. And when you look at the rich history and tradition of this organization, it's second to none. When you walk in down Bill Walsh Way, one of the, if not the greatest coach to ever play in this, to coach this game, and then go in the lobby and see the five Super Bowl trophies, you, know, you understand what this organization is all about. Uh, I think Jed's smart. I think he's aggressive. And then when you talk about Trent, Trent's a football guy. I like to think I'm a football guy. Uh, he's a grinder. He loves the game. Uh, he loves everything about the game. I, I love everything about the game. Uh, and I can't tell you how, what, what a blast it's been in the last two weeks just talking football, talking vision, to be able to collaboratively work with someone like that in terms of building this team and getting us to the point where we can get a sixth trophy to put in. That case out in front of 49-49 is something that we're going to strive for. We're going to work toward together. It's safe to say the 49ers did indeed win the press conference that afternoon. Kelly was both composed and confident when faced with tough questions from the local press. You know Jim Harbaugh well from your time in the Pac-12 and other things. How much have you learned about what went on with Harbaugh? Because you guys have very similar patterns in your career. And, I mean, he won a lot here, and mm -hmm. yet he was deemed expendable. Are you confident that you can make this situation work? I was confident in meeting with Trent and Jed about what the vision and focus of this organization was. And um, I got great respect for Jim. I competed against him when he was at Stanford. I competed against him when he was in the National Football League. Um, I'm a big Jim Harbaugh fan, and I know he's having great success at Michigan. But I think one thing all coaches know is we rent. We rent our locker spaces. We're not going to be places for an extended period of time. You just have to do the best job you possibly can. And if you go into a situation worrying about, am I not going to be there next year or the year after, you're probably not going to be. What you need to worry about is what's going to go on today. And I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to work with Trent. I'm excited to work with Jed. I'm excited to work with Tommy Gamble. I'm excited to work with Prague in terms of putting the best football team we can on the field. The most memorable quote that day may have not been from Kelly at all, but rather Jed York, who was asked by Tim Kawakami if he'd fired Chip Kelly for an 8-8 eight eight season. York simply replied, Chip's going to be here for a long time. Period. If there was a head coach that was going to be able to craft an offense around the skill set of Colin Kaepernick, it would be Chip Kelly. 
he's able to simplify the game for quarterbacks in a way that lets their athletic talents shine. And that's one thing that Colin Kaepernick had in spades, and that was athletic talent. And so I was very excited when we hired Chip Kelly because I thought that of the coaches that were available, that was one of the better options, especially if they were going to start drafting players and they were able to work in concert with the front office. Chip Kelly was put into, I think, an incredibly difficult situation. Like, I mean, nearly an impossible situation. Because I think even before then, even during the Tom Sula year, you could say like, okay, we're going to put this more on Jed, right? This is a Jed hire at head coach. And this was his fault for this one wasted season that we had with Tom Sula. But at that point, the roster was just in such bad shape. And you see the results of bad drafting year after year that no matter what Chip Kelly did, it was unlikely that they were going to be successful. Turns out the problem wasn't Harbaugh and the problem wasn't Chip Kelly. And the problem wasn't Tom Sula. It turns out that the strain throughout all of that was Trent Baalke and his ability to work with coaches and his ability to not help get personnel that fit with what the coach wanted ultimately put the team in a bind. Or to put it another way, Trent Baalke had made his bed, and now he had to lie in it. One year removed from the great player exodus of 2015, the 2016 San Francisco 49ers were now a team of Baalke's creation. These were his players, a roster composed of his draft picks and free agency finds of the past six years. And the crosshairs of the media, the fans, and the organization itself were now fixed squarely on the stoic scout. And unfortunately, the team's head coach was forced to play the hand he was dealt. While he agreed to not be the GM of the team, you know, he said he was going to be hands off of the roster while he was going to make those decisions. There were no big free agent pickups. Maybe it was hubris on the part of Balky, or maybe Santa Clara wasn't an attractive place to play in 2016 due to the controversy that continued to dominate the local headlines. But regardless of the reasons, the 49ers efforts in free agency that offseason came up empty. The only significant outsiders to join the red and gold that summer were wide receiver Torrey Smith and wide receiver Jeremy Curley. Balky later responded to his lack of action in free agency in the press, stating, quote, we're a draft and develop team. Again, I think he came into an unfair situation because we barely acquired any free agents. That was the season that Cap had offseason surgery, so Kaepernick wasn't even our starter. We had Blaine Gabbert who is basically Jim Harbaugh's reclamation project. That just wasn't a recipe for success in the long run either. Before the 2016 season began, both ESPN and Pro Football Focus published online rankings of all 32 rosters in the National Football League. Sitting at the bottom of those articles, just two seasons removed from playing in the NFC Championship were the San Francisco 49ers, the team that Balky built. And Chip Kelly, a man who had once been known as a football genius, was given no choice but to try to slam a proverbial square peg into a round hole. Not only was it this fast-paced offense where the defense was on the field for so much more time, so many more snaps than the offense was because there were so many three and outs and they were quick three and outs, I think his system just didn't work out for the players that he had on his team. Tip, a lot of people think you should keep your job. Did you have the roster to win more than two games this year? I, we don't control the roster, so I, I think the one thing is our jobs as coaches is to create an environment where our players have an opportunity to be successful, and that's what we have to do. So I don't look at, hey, I wish I had this, I wish I had that. You know, if, uh, We were fortunate for the guys we had, and we tried to coach them as hard as we could and as well as we could. So. It was a miserable season, dominated by poor health and poor play on both sides of the football. On defense, linebacker Navarro Bowman Defensive tackle Eric Armstead and safety Eric Reed would all have their seasons end prematurely due to injury. 
As a consequence, the 49ers would set an NFL record by allowing an 100-yard rusher in seven straight games, easily finishing as the worst rush defense in the NFL and the third worst in NFL history. On offense, it mattered little who the red and gold started under center that season. Blaine Gabbert often appeared less than competent, while Colin Kaepernick was average at best. Under Chip Kelly's direction, the 49ers offense seemed to thrive in the first half of games, but fade in the second. As if players became fatigued by Kelly's breakneck play calling or because Kelly failed to make second half adjustments to his game plan. The 49ers offense would finish near the bottom of the standings in nearly every measurable statistic in 2016, creating a unique and perfect storm of terrible football that season in Santa Clara. How quick the mighty have fallen. It's just kind of funny. In four years, we thought the DeBartolo family could control the electricity in New Orleans, and now we can barely beat a crappy team. Just two wins and 14 losses, with both victories coming against the Los Angeles Rams. An identical record as their 2004 season under Dennis Erickson, back where this Niners New Testament story began. A franchise-worst 1-7 record playing on their home field and a franchise-worst 13-game losing streak and a prompt return to the bottom of the NFL standings. I love these players, so I think if I was distracted by anything else, I wouldn't be giving them what they deserve. And, and they gave me everything on every day, so I, I got to give that back to them. So those guys are awesome. We've had a lot of different players come in and out. I think it was 19 guys went on IR. You got a lot of guys that just got here a couple weeks ago. They all bought in, you know, the entire group, whoever it was. You know, you watch the effort Joe Staley played with today coming off an injury, but there was no not keeping Joe on the field. You know, he was going to play in this game. Garrett Selleck, who's running a fever and probably shouldn't have played, but, you know, sucked it up. You know, one thing we talk about here all the time is, is don't complain. So, you know, we're all privileged to play this game and to coach this game. And so every time you get an opportunity to do it, then go out and do it. So it kind of sucked for Chip. There's a lot of things to like about what he did. I think there was a lot of things offensively that really got misconstrued. I think people with this whole, like, take your college offense back to college sort of thing was really unfounded. And I think from people that didn't really understand where the game was headed, you watch the offense that year, they had guys open, right? He was doing things successfully from a schematic standpoint. They just didn't have players to execute it, right? Colin Kaepernick was at his low point and basically wasn't able to kind of take advantage of a lot of those open receivers. They tried Blaine Gabbert. That was even worse. He kind of gets a bad rap. He's been known to be kind of hard to deal with, hard-headed, but he was great for the media. He's got a great dry sense of humor. The players really liked him because he changed around their schedule so it would be easier for them. They didn't have to get up so early in the morning, really trying to turn it around a team that has a depleted roster still. It's a Herculean task, really. Chip, would you, would you be surprised or are you disappointed that if you wouldn't be coming back next year? I don't think anything surprises me. I live my life in vision, not circumstances, so I, I control what I can control. And, you know, our, what we can control is how we coach our players and what we do with them. And, you know, if that's good enough, that's good enough. If it's not good enough, then so be it. The rumblings in the press of Chip Kelly's professional demise began in late October of that season, with the team now performing worse than it did under Jim Tom Sula. But as Chip Kelly's seat was heating up in Santa Clara, Trent Baalke's was also starting to cook. Prior to a Week 11 home game against the New York Jets, disgruntled 49er fans once again hired a plane to fly over Levi's Stadium, this time with a banner reading, Jed, you reap what you sow, fire Balky." Of course, this message was the direct nod to Jim Harbaugh's tweet from a year prior following the organization's release of Jim Tom Sula. Chip Kelly was not good enough of a head coach, 
and the talent was not there. And I think Jed made the best decision that he could have in firing Chip Kelly. And I think ultimately Chip Kelly got a raw deal out of it. But I think it was the best deal for everyone involved. And then when you get to the end of it, you're in a spot where, okay, we have to fire Trent Baalke at, at this point. I think it's very clear where the problem, where we have to press the reset button. It was the right thing to move on from him because it was the only way you were going to be successful long term. Uh, my opening statement is going to be pretty short. I want to make sure that I get to your questions. First, I want to let the fans know that I apologize for a 2-14 and 14 season. I apologize for being back here again and making a change. But I think it's very important that we reestablish a championship culture. We need to make sure that we move forward and find the right head coach and general manager, two guys that can work together and reestablish the level that we all expect and want for the San Francisco 49ers. Monday, January 2nd, 2017. No long folding table or plastic water bottles. Only 49ers owner and CEO Jed York, alone once again, dressed in a black suit and standing at the podium in the Levi Stadium press room. Once again, he appeared disheartened and defeated. Once again, he was earnest and apologetic with his words. Once again, he delivered a message seemingly tailored for the 49ers faithful watching at home. The product on the field was bad, and York was committed to making it better. But nothing that I'm going to say is going to be a satisfactory answer. We need to make sure that our success speaks for itself. Our actions have to speak for itself. I've done it before. We've put together a team that has had three NFC Championship runs. That was in the past. Like, I can't live on the past. I need to make sure that anything that I do is backed up by the results that are on the field. After being employed with the franchise for less than a calendar year, Chip Kelly was fired as head coach of the San Francisco 49ers. And after over 10 years of service in various roles, general manager Trent Baalke fell victim to the same fate. The 49ers front office would essentially be starting from scratch for the first time since 2005, though some familiar faces would be retained. The Marathlete, Parag Marate would remain on staff, as would team president Al Guido. And despite a growing outcry from an exasperated fan base and the press Democrats' Lil Cone, Jed York would not be firing himself or selling the team. We've got Mo here to the left. Jed, you dismissed your general manager and coach because they didn't reach certain uh, performance standards. <coughs> That's part of it. Okay, let's stick to that part. Why shouldn't you be dismissed or reassigned for the same reasons? Look, again, like nothing I'm going to say is going to be satisfactory. Say something. Well, nothing I'm going to say is going to be satisfactory. And again, we're going to be judged on what we do and what we accomplish. We haven't accomplished enough. I own this football team. You don't dismiss owners. I, I'm sorry that that's the facts and that's the case, but that's the fact. And I'm going to do everything that I can to get this right. This isn't about a business and running an operation to make money. We're making sure that we're doing everything that we can to reestablish this culture. It's not an easy decision to dismiss a head coach and a general manager, especially people that have you know, a lot of time left on their deals. But I think that's the best thing for us. And that's what we need to do in order to get us back to where we want to be. 
there were a lot of people that were like, we need to get Jed York out of here, right? And, and even though that wasn't a realistic thing, you know, it was one of, again, those famous press conference moments, but you don't fire owners. That was the sentiment, I think, of a large, large portion of the fan base was, we're not going to be good again until this guy's out of here. As it was in the beginning of the Niners New Testament, the San Francisco 49ers were once again the worst team in the National Football League, save for the bottom-dwelling Cleveland Browns. The red and gold had essentially come full circle, back to where they began 12 years prior. A slow but steady rise to greatness, followed by a swift and tremendous fall from grace. All housed in a shiny new state-of-the-art stadium filled with empty red seats. Resistance. Few things feel more satisfying than when justice prevails. Facing oppression, defeating evil, and prevailing with virtue. But often, doing the right thing means sacrifice. Putting oneself in harm's way for the benefit of others. When it comes to knowing when to stand up for ourselves, how, why, and even where to do so, the choice isn't always easy. Morality is often muddled in modern society. What one sees in black and white is gray to another, and so forth. This creates opposition to change, which then creates division. Two sides, two perspectives, both assuming moral propriety. The antithesis of yin and yang. But if one truly believes it is the right time to resist for the benefit of oneself or for others, then we must allow them the freedom to do so. They may have the backing of millions, the support of a few, or be completely alone in their actions. But to deny another the opportunity to resist would contradict what it means to be human and free to make our own choices. Resistance. Who's your favorite 49er of the last 10 years? It probably would have to be uh, Colin Kaepernick, not only as a football player, but just like the character he has and what he's standing for. I just agree with totally what he has to say about all the police brutality and all. Do you wish Colin was still on the 49ers? Uh, well, I just feel like now since the team is rebuilding, he kind of lost his place on the team. I feel like he's a good player and he deserves to be, you know, somewhere like shining on some team, you know, if it's not with the Niners, because I know he's got some skills, man. He's a good quarterback. Lost in today's discourse surrounding the NFL and protesting, those heated dialogues in break rooms, sports bars, and on social media and TV sets across the country is the legacy of Colin Kaepernick as an NFL quarterback. Quite simply, for a brief moment in time, there was no professional football player on the planet more dynamic or more dangerous than the former 49ers quarterback. Colin Kaepernick 
is a star that shone incredibly bright with his time on the 49ers. When I think of the more exciting games and the more exciting plays that I've witnessed in the past probably 10 years of 49ers football, a lot of them involve Colin Kaepernick. Colin will always be remembered as the guy who took everybody's breath away when he had the ball in his hands those first couple years. He was fearless, he was unstoppable, he was so fast, he was unbelievably productive. He really could do no wrong. Colin Kaepernick is without question responsible for some of my fondest 49ers memories. I was gone to Afghanistan for the military and came back. And one of the first things that I did was go to a 49ers game. And it was Colin Kaepernick's first start against the Bears. And it was just such an exciting and like incredible thing to be able to watch. I remember thinking afterward, like, oh man, they found their guy. And I'm straining to reach the light on the surface. It just felt good to be back out on the football field playing. I mean, I, th I thought we did a good job as offense. We put points on the board. Our offense, or our defense did a great job out there holding them. We came out on top, so it was good. Considering that Alex is, uh, seems likely that he'll be okay to play for next week, were you looking at this as a, like a big opportunity, almost like a one-shot, not forever, but to show what you can do? You know? Um, definitely. I mean, I wanted to come out and show what I was capable of, show that I could be a starter. Um, and that's what I've been trying to prove since I've been in the league. A second round pick out of the University of Nevada, the Turlock, California native replaced a concussed Alex Smith during the 2012 season and never looked back. Early in his career, Colin Kaepernick's play was often breathtaking. His NFL debut against the Chicago Bears on Monday Night Football provided him with his first career win and an improbable 133.1 passer rating. His four-touchdown performance on the road against the New England Patriots that same season yielded one of the most entertaining games of the Jim Harbaugh era and the entire NFL season. His frequent battles with both the Green Bay Packers and the New Orleans Saints would often put the 49ers in uncomfortable situations, yet Kaepernick usually found a way to win. And his sheer domination over the lesser teams of that era was simply taken for granted during that time with the young quarterback racking up a tally of double-digit victories over a long list of opponents. You can just stop and pinch yourself like, this is crazy right <laughs> um, it, it is a little bit crazy, a little bit surreal. I'm just trying to keep my head down and try to keep it going as long as I can. This is 6.33 left in the game. This is, they scored 28 on points. This is, you played five games, started five games in your career, and Tom Brady is one of the Hall of Fame on the other side. And that is sort of ultimate and surreal. And you throw that touchdown pass. And it's that simple that that's the play you saw. I mean, that's the only emotions that are kind of through <laughs> you. I mean, this is my 17th year of football. I've been playing since I was eight years old. So to me, when I go out there, I'm going to throw to the guy who's open. And you try to keep football simple so your mind can be clear when you're on the field. The Patriots game in that kind of shootout with New England, him shredding the Packers, not only in the playoffs, then coming out week one and shredding them in a completely different way. Kaepernick playing Green Bay, maneuvered himself and the team down the field and around those guys. I mean, just really unstoppable. Were you aware that you broke the uh, all-time NFL record for uh, rushing yards by quarterback in any game? Uh, not until after the game. Me, what does it mean to you? I mean, it's a great accolade. I think it means a, a lot to this team. 
Our offensive line did an amazing job. Our receivers, tight ends, running backs were doing an amazing job. So they opened up a lot of lanes for him. Everything that happened during the playoffs that year and what he was able to do coming back against the Falcons and nearly coming back in the Super Bowl. The touchdown pass that he threw to Anquan Bolden over Earl Thomas in the NFC Championship game that he had no business throwing. It's such a noticeable difference from what we saw with this team when Alex Smith was under center. There was noticeable improvement in the passing game and it felt like the ceiling was much, much higher when Kaepernick got there. And it, it was just some incredible moments to remember. I looked forward to the times where he would score a rushing touchdown to see him Kaepernick. I still have my Kaepernick shirt. Once he took over, like it was him and that was it. The hype surrounding Kaepernick's brilliance reached a fever pitch following the 2012 campaign in which Cap and Harbaugh's mighty men fell just five yards short of capturing San Francisco's sixth Lombardi trophy. During the ensuing offseason, former Philadelphia Eagles quarterback and ESPN analyst Ron Jaworski created massive waves in the press. We announced the following on national television. I truly believe Colin Kaepernick could be one of the greatest quarterbacks ever. I love his skill set. We heard Shelley talking about the arm strength. He throws with accuracy. And in today's NFL, you have to have mobility. He's got all those attributes. The media at large quickly latched on a Jaworski's bold statement mostly due to ESPN broadcasting the quote across all of their programming ad nauseum. In a sense, Jaworski's quote became a Tim Tebow kind of news story, a topic of debate created by ESPN for ESPN. Meanwhile, Kaepernick's response to Jaworski was one of humility and virtue. Ron Jaworski uh, said today that he thought you could be the, the greatest quarterback of all time, best quarterback ever. How, how do you deal with, with praise and, and stuff like that uh, in this offseason and, and whatnot? I'm working. Uh, to me, it's a great honor that he said that. Uh, very flattered by it, but at the same time, I haven't played a full season yet. But almost as soon as the dawn of Kaepernick was upon the NFL, the young quarterback's greatness began to fade. In 2013, Kaepernick's critics began to notice a dip in the quarterback's passing numbers, though much of it could be traced to the nearly year-long absence of wide receiver Michael Crabtree, who had torn his Achilles tendon prior to that season. In fact, once a healthy Crabtree returned to the starting lineup, Kaepernick finished with a passer rating of over 100 in every remaining game that season, save for one tough win at home against the Seattle Seahawks. You feel like you're starting to get your swagger back, your confidence. I see you made a couple throws that were really good throws. Some would categorize them as risky, but you still made the attempt to get the ball in there. You feel yourself getting that confidence back to let it rip? I think this team is getting this confidence back. Our defense has played amazing. Our offensive line played well. We ran the ball well, and we got a win. Yet the 2013 postseason did Kaepernick no favors when it came to his critics. Or, more specifically, his performance in the 2013 NFC Championship game against the Seattle Seahawks. To his credit, Kaepernick had already dispatched both the Green Bay Packers and the Carolina Panthers on the road that January. And he was often brilliant that evening in Seattle as well. He totaled 153 yards in the air and 130 on the ground against the Seahawks defense that was considered by many to be one of the best units in NFL history. His leaping touchdown throw to Anquan Bolden, grazing the fingertips of safety Earl Thomas, may also be the single best play of Kaepernick's professional career. But his three turnovers that night, including a now infamous game-ending interception thanks to the left hand of cornerback Richard Sherman, would sadly bring Kaepernick more scrutiny than ever, from both 49er fans 
and foes alike. How'd you think you played there? I didn't play good enough to win. Uh, turned the ball over three times. I cost us this game. Colin, did you make the right decision on the last pass? I think so. I, I'll take that matchup every time. But did you put the ball where you wanted to? Uh, could put a little deeper in the corner and gave only crap a chance. Colin Kaepernick's 2014 season, his final with Jim Harbaugh, only served to raise more questions regarding the young quarterback's abilities and study habits. Picked as Super Bowl favorites by many in the press, the 49ers instead finished with an 8-8 record and in the bottom third of nearly all offensive statistics. Kaepernick's play that season was marked by inconsistency, throwing for only 19 touchdowns with 10 interceptions and earning him a pedestrian quarterback rating of 86.4. He also took 52 sacks, the product of an oft-injured offensive line and numerous attempts by number 7 to scramble away from pressure. But it was the 2015 season with Jim Tom Sula leading a team depleted of both talent and coaching expertise, where the bottom truly dropped out for Colin Kaepernick. The turning point in his career was a game in Arizona where he threw two pick sixes and four interceptions. He got hit a few times. The offensive line wasn't what it was. I think it shook his confidence. And I think really that season, that game in particular, was incredibly hard for him to turn around from. Paul, was it anything the Cardinals were doing defensively today that kind of threw you guys for a loop? No, they played man most of the game. The biggest thing was I didn't play well. I put our, our team behind the eight ball from the jump, and we never rebounded from that. Very hard for me to deal with. Very hard uh, to see myself go out and play like that and hurt this team uh, the way I did. I nullified all the efforts of every other player on that field today, and that's something I have to fix. I have to be better for this team moving forward. Nine completions on 19 attempts for a total of 67 yards. Four interceptions with two return for touchdowns on consecutive drives in the first quarter. A dismal quarterback rating of 16.7. The 47-7 loss to the Arizona Cardinals remains the worst statistical performance of Colin Kaepernick's career by a large margin. It's the game his detractors often point to when asked if he should still be employed in the NFL. Colin Kaepernick's a great quarterback. He wasn't given a fair shake. He's always had a little bit of issues with that second read, but that can be, I believe, developed. You know, a lot of the other issues were accuracy related. Yeah, I mean, I thought he uh, started off really good, and I think personally he just let it get to his head, and then he couldn't perform on what he expected he would and everybody else expected him to. And then just as a quarterback, I think he went downhill. Yeah, he could run the ball, but at the same time, the guy couldn't make more than one read, and he tried to you know, run around. And I think defense is caught up to that, saying, let's see if this guy can make his reads and stay in the pocket. And I think you know, that showed what it showed. During the previous week, the 49ers had been rocked 43-18 to in Pittsburgh. But the Week 3 implosion against a division foe like the Cardinals was a definitive sign that the shine was officially off Kaepernick and the 49ers. The worst fears of what the team would become without Jim Harbaugh were now a reality. And for that week, at the very least, Colin Kaepernick's poor play was one of the main contributors to the fall of the San Francisco 49ers. I don't think he's a player that really had faced a ton of adversity coming from college. Just his confidence was shaken at that point. He knew it was his fault. And then from that point on, he never wanted it to be his fault that they lost again. So he lost his freedom and his confidence and his ability to take chances, and he played safe. And then when he came back from his injuries, instead of leading his receivers and giving them the ball in the window that they had to catch it, 
he would kind of wait for them to get to that point and then fire the ball in as hard as he could. He just wasn't that same player that he was his first two years with the Niners. The Colin Kaepernick of 2015 was no longer the fast and fearless playmaker from years prior. Hesitant in the pocket and prone to inaccuracy, what remained was an inconsistent shell of a formerly outstanding player. Some of the blame could definitely be placed on number seven, but head coach Jim Tom Sula and his staff also failed to provide answers for the horrid performance of the 49ers offense that season. I think it became clear as things started to fall off around him that there were certainly some flaws that weren't recognized early on. There are very few guys in the league that just elevate everybody around them. There's not many guys in that Brady, Manning, Breeze sort of ilk that you know that as long as they're on the field that your team's going to be competitive. The rest of Colin Kaepernick's 2015 season lasted only five additional games, as he was replaced by backup Blaine Gabbert in Week 9. By most accounts, Gabbard initially performed better than Kaepernick, even winning his home debut against the Atlanta Falcons. But Gabbard's play would also decline dramatically as the 2015 season wore on. Kaepernick would then undergo season-ending surgery a few weeks after his demotion, as a nagging injury to his non-throwing shoulder proved to be an extensive tear to his left labrum. The 49ers would then finish the 2015 season with just five wins, two for Colin Kaepernick and three for Blaine Gabbard. In a completely non-scientific way, look at the promo reels on NFL Network. Look at the players that they highlight. Those are the superstars in the league at any given moment. And at one time, those promos, they involved Colin Kaepernick. They involved him running and they involved him Kaepernicking. And by 2016, with Chip Kelly, he was viewed as a broken quarterback, supposedly the one-read quarterback, which I still do not think is an accurate description of his game, even though he does have some issues when it comes to kind of scanning and reading an entire field. Friday, August 26, 2016. The San Francisco 49ers hosted the Green Bay Packers at Levi's Stadium for the third week of NFL preseason play. The game itself wasn't remarkable. Your standard NFL exhibition contest. Green Bay prevailed 21-10, and Colin Kaepernick received his first in-game snaps since rehabbing from off-season surgery on his shoulder, thumb, and knee. Rather, it was what transpired prior to kickoff that would create a firestorm of controversy for both the San Francisco 49ers and the National Football League. And it all began with a grainy cell phone photograph of the 49ers sideline, taken from the press box by Niners Nation's Jennifer Lee Chan during the playing of the United States National Anthem. The funny thing about that picture is I took it kind of as a joke. Jeff Fisher and the Rams were on hard knocks that year, and he has a very strict policy of the national anthem. The players stand on the white line, the coaches stand on the yellow line. You either have your hand on your heart or your hands behind your back. He has very strict rules. So I looked down at the 49ers sidelines and people are all over the place. They're not moving, they're being respectful, but they weren't lined up in any particular order. So I took a picture of the sideline and tweeted it with the quote, this sideline is not Jeff Fisher approved. I actually didn't really notice, no one noticed that Colin was sitting in the middle of that picture. It just was kind of, you know, a random picture of the sideline. So we go through the whole game, go to the press conferences afterwards. Steve Weish from NFL Network happens to be there. And it's the first game that Colin has played in the preseason because he's come back from three different surgeries. Blaine Gabbert played, I think, both of the two preseason games before that. So 
Steve Weish is there to cover Colin Kaepernick playing his first preseason game after his three surgeries. Pulls him out of the press conference after his game. They chat. We don't really think anything of it. We all go up to the press box. We write our stories covering the preseason game. And then we're on our way, walking out to our cars. And I believe it was pro football talk that says Colin Kaepernick sat during the national anthem. It just so happens that it was kind of one of those fortuitous moments where I happened to take a picture of the sideline and just so happened that the angle that I took it at was right where you could see Colin sitting right in between the Gatorade tubs. different kind of story is now developing from the 49ers preseason game in Santa Clara Friday night. Prior to the exhibition game against the Green Bay Packers, 49ers quarterback Colin Kaepernick reportedly made the decision to remain seated on the team's bench during the playing of the national anthem. In an interview with the NFL Network following the game, Kaepernick explained that his actions were in protest of the United States, quote, ongoing oppression of people of color. Kaepernick cited having personal experiences with racial oppression and also clarified that his actions are not meant to disrespect the military. The 28-year-old quarterback has been previously outspoken regarding civil rights issues on social media and seemingly began his protest weeks earlier, sitting during the anthem for the team's previous two preseason games. Kaepernick has since stated that the negative comments he has received on social media are worth it to make a point. The NFL has also responded to Kaepernick's actions, stating that players are encouraged but not required to stand during the national anthem. The fallout from Chan's photograph was unprecedented. Colin Kaepernick's decision to sit for the national anthem to raise awareness of racial oppression was a landmark moment in the history of professional sports. It harkened back to the protests of African-American track athletes Tommy Smith and John Carlos, who both donned a single black glove and raised their fists while on the winner's podium during the 1968 Olympic Games, their demonstrations also occurring during the playing of the U.S. National Anthem. And similarly, Kaepernick's actions that evening ignited an endless exchange of fierce debates across the country regarding the approach and purpose of his protest. I mean, ultimately, it's to bring awareness and make people, you know, realize what's really going on in this country. There are a lot of things that are going on that are unjust, people aren't being held accountable for, and that's something that needs to change. You know, this country stands for freedom, liberty, justice for all, and it's not happening for all right now. Will you continue, Colin, to sit? Yes, I'll continue to sit. I'm going to continue to stand with the people that are being oppressed. To me, this is something that has to change, and... When there's significant change, and I feel like that flag represents what it's supposed to represent, and this country is representing people the way that it's supposed to, I'll stand. Specifically, what would you like to see change in order for you to stand? There's a lot of things that need to change. One specifically is police brutality. There's people being murdered unjustly and not being held accountable. Cops are getting paid leave for killing people. That's not right. That's not right by anyone's standards. Colin, so many people see the flag as kind of a symbol of military. How do you view it, and what do you say to those people? You know, I have great respect for men and women that have fought for this country. I have family. I have friends that have gone and fought for this country. They fight for freedom. They fight for the people. They fight for liberty and justice for everyone. And that's not happening. Men and women that have been in the military have come back and been treated unjustly by the country they fought for and have been murdered by the country they fought for. On our land, that's not right. The following week in San Diego, Kaepernick met with former Seattle Seahawks long snapper Nate Boyer, 
a former United States Army Green Beret credited with six years of service and multiple tours in both Iraq and Afghanistan. It was there at Qualcomm Stadium, prior to the 49ers' final preseason game against the Chargers, that Boyer and Kaepernick discussed the greater intent and nature of the quarterback's protest. And per Boyer's advice, Kaepernick then decided he would kneel during the anthem going forward instead of sitting. Boyer would later comment on his conversation that day with Kaepernick, stating, quote, I suggested kneeling because people kneel to pray. We kneel in front of a fallen brother's grave. As far as taking a knee tonight, Eric, as well as myself, had a long conversation with Nate Boyer, who is a military vet. We were talking to him about how can we get the message back on track and not take away from the military, not take away from pride in our country, but keep the focus on what the issues really are. And as we talked about it, we came up with taking a knee because there are issues that still need to be addressed. It was also a way to try to show more respect to the men and women that fight for this country. But despite Kaepernick being receptive to Boyer's advice and altering his demonstration accordingly, the controversy surrounding Kaepernick's protests only intensified as the 2016 season began. And the backlash from a large portion of the 49ers faithful and NFL fans at large was significant. Colin, when he came in at the stick, I was standing in the stands yelling, let's go Colin. I love Colin for his quarterbacking skills, but the NFL does not pay people to do that on the field. When I have somebody come to service my plumbing or my cable, if they want to spend time talking about their political views, I kick them out. You know, personally, I just don't think that's the right way to protest and get your point across. I think that's disrespectful to our nation's uh, armed forces. I think there's a lot of other ways he could have used his uh, fame to get that point across in the media and whatnot. You know, I just want to leave it at that. I just don't agree with it. And I just, I think it was the wrong way to approach that. Ultimately, the kneeling was the final nail in the Kaepernick career coffin, so to speak, because... By the time he started kneeling, he was already on the decline as a superstar and a quarterback. The media narrative was very much that he was a quarterback that the Niners had potentially committed all this money to in error. And then he does something that rankles a lot of the probably conservative-leaning fan base in the NFL, a league that is grand on military gesture, a league that has military flyovers during the national anthem ahead of games. And he did something that was going to offend some people. And so I think it was at that point very easy for people to turn their back on him. Well, I think it's a misunderstanding. You know, the media painted this as um, anti-American, anti-men and women of the military. And that's not the case at all. You know, I realize that men and women of the military go out and sacrifice their lives and put themselves in harm's way for my freedom of speech and my freedoms in this country and my freedom to take a seat or take a knee. So I have the utmost respect for them. And I think what I did was taken out of context and spun a different way. As you may recall, the 2016 season was not kind to the San Francisco 49ers. Alongside the backlash to Kaepernick's protests was a disappointing 2-14 season under head coach Chip Kelly, where the 49ers were starved for talent and riddled with injuries on defense. All the while, Kaepernick still managed to perform better than his previous year under center, finishing the season with a favorable 90.7 rating. Yet with the 49ers defense performing at a historically low level in 2016, Kaepernick only managed one win and 11 starts, a mark that earned him no favors when faced with criticism regarding his play 
or his politics. For the kneeling, I don't know that I personally agree with it, but he's free to do whatever he wants. The thing with me is, like, I'd watched him failed at being the quarterback we needed to for so long. So, like, for me, it's not even about that. Like, it was just time for the Niners to move on from him. Well, I'll tell you one thing we're sick of hearing is that Colin Kaepernick would have a job if he didn't kneel. <clears throat> Any other team in the league, be my guest to pick him up and just see what happens. <laughs> and, you know, very quickly realize you regret your decision. So I don't think the kneeling has anything to do with his employment status right now. And kind of getting sick of people saying that. <laughs> I think that if Colin Kaepernick were still a superstar, I think he still would have pissed a lot of people off with the kneeling, but I don't think it would have been as big of a deal. One of the truisms of the NFL is that your talent is directly proportionate to the number of chances that you receive and the amount of rope that you're given. And I don't think that Colin Kaepernick was at the point in his career where he was going to be given a lot of rope because he wasn't performing the way that fans wanted him to. It was very easy, I think, for fans to turn on him and to just say, that's not what I want to be a part of. Well, I think there's kind of two schools of philosophy on it where you either dislike it because it's disrespectful or you are fine with it because it's freedom of speech. What it is, it's unfortunate that his play isn't what it was three years prior with the same action. It'd be a totally different situation if he was still taking the team to NFC Championship games and kneeling. It is very interesting to think of what this all would have looked like if it happened in 2013. Coming off the incredible 10-game stretch and Super Bowl run that they had in 2012, and he's looked at as in that group with Russell Wilson and Andrew Luck as kind of the next great generation of quarterbacks, if it would have happened then, how would have people have felt about it? Because I think the better you are, the more talented of a player you are, the better your team is doing, gives you more leeway to kind of branch out from that. At the conclusion of the 2016 season, Colin Kaepernick opted out of his contract with the San Francisco 49ers. It was a move that caused many critics to question the quarterback's desire to continue playing in the NFL part of the narrative that Kaepernick himself remains solely to blame for his lingering unemployment with the league, which continues to this day. Yet what a simple web search will show anyone is that the 49ers were planning to cut Kaepernick that spring regardless. In an interview with Mike Florio of Pro Football Talk, newly hired 49ers general manager John Lynch explained that he provided Kaepernick with a choice, opt out or be released by the 49ers. Lynch told Florio, quote, we gave him the option. You can opt out, we can release you, whatever. And he chose to opt out. But that was just a formality. He had a ton of potential, very skilled player. And for the year that he was really valuable for them, he did work. And then the next year, the DCs figured out how to defend against the run option, and he became worthless in the league. And what he needed to do was become someone's backup and learn the ropes for a few years. Once 2016 rolled around and he was kind of viewed as this broken quarterback that has been exposed and there's all these misconceptions about the read option and how NFL defenses have now respond and they've caught on and Colin Kaepernick has no more tricks left. And then you add this kind of extra off-field stuff that I think a lot of people just don't want to think about when they're watching NFL games and it just kind of was a recipe for disaster for his career. You know, my brother's a Marine. You know, I called him immediately and said, what do you think? And he was like, you know, I don't like it, but at the same time, I get why he's doing it. I don't feel like it's disrespectful to the flag, per se, because he communicated clearly what it was for. As people, we just need to do things quicker and then start working on a solution. I think that kind of messed him up, where he continued to do it for a prolonged period of time. It was almost like an act of defiance to 
ownership. There's different ways to go about it, but at the same time, you can't knock him for what he did. People have a lot of issues with it. I don't have a problem with it. I think that's absolutely his right to do that. As a philanthropist, I think actually I respect what he's done. Some of the things that he said I haven't respected as much, like saying he wasn't going to vote, I thought was in poor taste because obviously if you say you want to make a difference and that's a big way to do it but he's donated a ton of money um, I just don't think football is important to him anymore I think it's secondary to all the other stuff that he wants to do when Colin started to express his political views a lot of the fans said I'm paying to be here this is my escape on Sunday I don't need that presented to me Colin took it to a level that was impeding on my time as a season ticket owner to be able to go to the game and escape for three hours and not have to have the world of football interfered with by somebody who brought social issues to the field. And that's unfortunate for Colin, whose skills are great, but I don't come here to listen to Colin. I come here to watch Colin throw a football. It's really funny to think that we expect sports to be that healing thing for us. And we want that of our sports figures. We want them to be in this little bubble. And yet I think we forget they're humans too. They're people, they have thoughts, they have opinions, they have politics, they have these things. We almost want to treat them like they're GI Joes. Like we just want to pose them and put them places and have them be there for our play and our enjoyment. And if they ever break out of that shiny little box, all of a sudden we can't handle it. And we're like, no, 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 go back in your, your box. You're supposed to be my GI Joe. I'm supposed to play with you and go pew, pew, and that's it, right? And we forget that these are human beings. These are complex beings. Yes, they are fantastic athletes and they're elite at sports. And we love that on Sundays. But I think oftentimes people forget that there, there should be a measure of empathy because they're people too. How can you stand for the national anthem of a nation that preaches and propagates Freedom and justice for all, that is so unjust to so many of the people living there. How can you not be in a rage when you know that you are always at risk of death in the streets or enslavement in the prison system? How can you willingly be blind to the truth of systemic racialized injustice? Since parting ways with the 49ers in March of 2017, Colin Kaepernick has remained a free agent unemployed by the NFL. In October of 2017, Kaepernick responded by filing a grievance against the NFL for collusion, stating that, quote, the defendants have colluded to deprive Mr. Kaepernick of employment rights in retaliation for Mr. Kaepernick's leadership and advocacy for equality and social justice and bringing awareness to institutions still undermining racial equality in the United States. And in May of 2018, former 49ers safety Eric Reed filed a suit similar to Kaepernick's alleging collusion on behalf of the NFL's 32 owners in response to his pregame protests. Reed, like Kaepernick, had also lingered as a free agent after his contract expired with the 49ers, though he would later sign with the Carolina Panthers three weeks into the 2018 season. And in February of 2019, both men resolved their grievances with the NFL, which included a settlement of an undisclosed sum of money for both men, believed to be around $10 million each, this according to Andrew Beaton of the Wall Street Journal. Yet objectively speaking, there is only one reason Colin Kaepernick is unemployed, and it's the reason everyone in America seems to agree on. The NFL's quarterback needy teams would rather not deal with a player that they believe is bad for business. Whether or not it was a case of collusion remains unknown to the press and the general public. But objectively, Colin Kaepernick does not have a job in the National Football League because he chose to protest during, but not against, the national anthem. And the league's owners, 
individually or collectively, decided that such a behavior was no longer welcome in their stadiums. My love for my people serves as the fuel that motivates me and fortifies me on my mission. It is the people's unbroken love for themselves that motivates me even when faced with dehumanizing norms of a system that can lead to the loss of one's life over simply being black. I personally fully support his politics. The NFL is a great pedestal for staging protests. You absolutely have the right to free speech and you should exercise it for things that you care about. The fact that he got blackballed or whether you think he got blackballed or not is unfortunate for his career. But I think that it's important that he took a stand for what he believed in. I do think Colin deserves to have a job in the NFL right now. It just, you look at the quarterback play and some of the guys who are backups on teams and his stats and his ability are by far higher and better than many quarterbacks on many rosters. Maybe he wouldn't be a starting quarterback, but he should definitely be a backup. It's mind boggling that he's not on a roster at this moment. I think he is still one of the top two thirds of quarterbacks in the league and he's good enough to start for lots of teams. I think Colin Kaepernick is a quarterback that should be in the NFL, and he's by no way, shape, or form a perfect quarterback, and I don't think that he's an elite quarterback in the same way that I would say, you know, Rodgers and Brady and Breeze are in that elite category, but he is definitely a quarterback that a team could build an offense around. And I think it's honestly a travesty that he's not in the NFL, but I will always have a special place in my heart for Colin Kaepernick because some of the things that I saw him do on a football field were just completely mind-boggling. After his release from the 49ers, Colin Kaepernick pledged to donate $1 million to charity over the course of the 2017 calendar year, as well as the proceeds from his 2016 jersey sales. He has since completed those goals and provided assistance to over 30 different charitable organizations around the world, with additional donations contributed by other athletes and celebrities, including Serena Williams, Stephen Curry, Kevin Durant, Snoop Dogg, Alicia Keys, and more. Once again, I'm not anti-American. I love America. I love people. That's why I'm doing this. I want to help make America better. And I think having these conversations helps everybody have a better understanding of where everybody is coming from. Thank you for listening to Document 49. This concludes our stories prologue. The program will return during the 2020 NFL offseason with more great San Francisco 49ers stories of the past and present. If you enjoyed the show and would like to hear more, please subscribe and review the program on iTunes. You can also visit document49.com to learn more about the project. Document 49 is written, produced, hosted, and edited by me, Nicholas Sheldon. Oscar Aparicio and David Newman appear courtesy of Niners Nation and Pro Football Focus. Jennifer Lee Chan appears courtesy of NBC Sports Bay Area. Abstract monologues written by Sam Klein and voiced by Gil Knight. Additional voiceover contributions performed by Kirby Bridges, Sam Farnsworth, Bobby Kesselman, Jordan Mason, and Nick Mora. Breathe is performed by Flurry and produced by Tommy Prophet from Flurry's latest album, Love and War, now available for purchase on iTunes or wherever digital music is sold. 
Document 49's soundtrack is performed by Syndrome and Jurich, both independent composers from Canada and Croatia, respectively. Whether you are a hip-hop or R&B artist looking for a new beat, or are creative in need of original music for a digital media project, the innovative and extraordinary sounds of Syndrome and Jurich will consistently surpass your expectations. All of these individuals contributed to Document 49 solely due to a shared interest in helping produce the program. If you enjoyed what you heard on this episode, be sure to follow them and support their work. Links to their various websites and social media accounts can be found on document49.com. Just click Voices at the top of the screen. Thank you again for listening to Document 49. This program takes countless hours to produce, so your patience during the production process is appreciated. Follow the show on social media to stay updated on when the next episode will be available. Until next time, be well, take care, and go Niners. Thank you for listening to Document 49. For more, subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast distributor. And for production and release updates, follow Document 49 on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Hey Niner fans, need a 49er flag for your home, car, or tailgate party? Then check out Judy's Flag City based right here in the San Francisco Bay Area. For over 20 years, Judy's Flag City has served as the largest retailer of flags and banners in Northern California, with an endless selection of flags for every occasion. American flags, flags of the world in the 50 states, decorative flags and windsocks, And of course, flags featuring the San Francisco 49ers and the Giants, the Golden State Warriors, the Oakland A's, and yes, the Oakland Raiders too. Whether you're looking to decorate your yard, celebrate a holiday, or support the 49ers on Sundays, Judy's has got you covered. Just click over to judysflagcity.com to check out her selection. And right now you can get 10% off your order by using the word document during checkout. Just type in document as your coupon code and you'll save 10% off of your entire purchase. So visit judysflagcity.com now to help show your pride for your country or your San Francisco 49ers with a brand new flag. Or come visit the store in person right here in Belmont on the Northern California Peninsula. That's judysflagcity.com. Fly your flag proudly with Judy's. Suicide is not inevitable for anyone. Healing, hope, and help are happening every day. If you or someone you care about is feeling hopeless, displaying extreme mood swings, increasing the use of alcohol or drugs, or isolating from others, you or your loved one may be showing warning signs of suicide. But help is available. Call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255 for support. The Lifeline is available 24-7 across the United States and is free and confidential. To find out more about how you can take action to help someone in crisis, visit BeTheOne2.com. That's BeTheOne2.com.